Our Father, use this time to minister to the hearts of your people through your word. Illumine uh, our minds. May the truths that here are eternal encourage our hearts, build us up. May we see Jesus Christ in his great glory as we look at the word of God this morning. We ask these things for your own praise and honor as we bless your name. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll open your copy of the scripture, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. I've been in 1 John a few weeks now and moving around in various places. I feel it's um, uh, what's on my heart, the Lord's place there. And so I want to uh, share with you uh, this portion of scripture. 1 John chapter 3. Three verses. The first three verses is where our focus will be this morning. 1 John chapter 3. Let me set these verses in your your mind by reading them in your hearing. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. On a day divinely scheduled, Christians will see Jesus. On that momentous occasion, our faith will give way to sight. Then, no longer as we do now, see in a mirror dimly but then face to face as 1 Corinthians 13 12 prophesies that great future experience is part of our hope our hope is not a wish it's not wishful thinking our hope is guaranteed it is a certainty that it will be realized because God in his word has promised it. He has promised it to us, this hope that we have. Who are we? Who we are is our first point. Verse 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. We are the recipients of divine love. John, the writer of these words, is excited about the love of the Father bestowed on us. It comes through in his words here. You see the term see that leads off the English sentence. It could be rendered look at or behold. He is suggesting to us that we need to contemplate this great love. In fact, this word is an exclamation, and it is also an imperative. John is exclaiming this great love, but he's also commanding the hearers, the readers, that they need to behold this, contemplate this. The words, how great, communicate his astonishment, his amazement. The term... Greek term behind how great was a term that originally meant of what country? Something foreign. 
What John is telling us, the love of God is foreign. It is unearthly. It's not like anything seen in this world. It's different. It's distinct. There's nothing comparable to it. Its origin, in fact, is heavenly. In Ephesians chapter 1, at the end of verse 4, and really the verse, the words belong to verse 5, it says this, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In love. Prior to the creation of the world, all who are believers... All who will come to faith in Christ, God in love, the Father in love, predestined us to the adoption of sons. Further, this love that John's excited about, this love that astonishes him, was not predicated on our goodness. We did not merit it. On the contrary, we have have demerits. We weren't good and we didn't deserve this love. Romans chapter 5 verses 7 and 8 declares it this way. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. Christ died For us. So the love the Father bestowed on us was an unmerited love. It's a love that brings astonishment. It's a saving love. It's a love given to us despite what we were. This great love that He bestowed on us by grace. It could not be earned certainly could not be purchased by us. This is amazing love that the Father has bestowed on his children. In fact, this amazing love is further amplified in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. You can see there uh, the greatness of this love that the Father has bestowed on us. Verse 9 of 1 John 4, by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Let's take a moment to unpack this verse and the next one so that we might further grasp the greatness of this amazing love. First thing we see, the word there manifested. It's made visible. It's made plain. And it says, in us. Another way to state it, are in our case. (laughs) What the Father did, he sent his only begotten Son into the world. Only begotten, those two words, monongages, the Greek term, meaning one of a kind, unique. One who has no equal and is fully able to reveal the Father. He sent that son, son that's incomparable, a son who is in a class all by himself. That son 
he sent that we might live through him, have eternal life. Now we'll look here in verse 10 as John continues this strain of thought. He says, in this love, in this is love, not that we loved God. No, you need to pause there for a moment. We didn't love God. Every sinner hates God. Every sinner is in opposition to God. But the reality is God knew us for what we were, but he loved us. He initiated the love. And we're going to see here in this verse a further exposition of divine attributes. We've already addressed the first one, love. Obviously, he loved us. We didn't love him. Verse 10, but that he loved us. <laughs> there it is. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You need to stop and think about that word for a moment. That word propitiation relates to divine wrath. And the word sin, the end of the verse, sins, relates to divine justice. First, let me say this. Love seeks the welfare of those loved. God sought our eternal welfare. He sought our eternal well-being. We who did not love him, we who hated him, he sought our well-being. While he loved us, there is a companion truth. His wrath was also directed at us. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says this, um, We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Think about it. God loved us, yet his wrath was directed at us. We see two of God's attributes, his love and his holiness. They were operative along with his uh, attribute of justice. He must deal with sin. That's where propitiation comes in. God's wrath. People don't like to talk about that. But we have to. Because it's a reality. D.A. Carson writes, quote, Theologically, God's wrath is inseparable from what it means to be God. It is a function of his holiness. He's right. A God, God is a God of wrath. is just as much as he is a God of love. People oftentimes like to magnify and elevate the one attributes of divine, attribute of divine love and ignore the reality that God is also a God of holiness. In fact, his love is a holy love. That's why... He said his son because he had to deal because of his holiness with his own wrath and with our sins. And we see that here in this remarkable word, propitiation. It's God deals with it. God punishes sin. God's wrath is his settled opposition to sin. In his mind, his heart, he is utterly opposed to sin. And this big word, propitiation, it's a good word to learn too, isn't it? 
It's a good word to know. It's a good word to understand what it means. Propitiation, let me just kind of unpack it a little bit here for us. He punished our sin in Christ. His just wrath against us was poured out in full fury on Christ when Christ was on the cross in our stead on our behalf. Christ became sin for us. And God poured out his wrath as Christ bore our sin. What Christ did then in bearing our sin, he propitiated God. He propitiated divine wrath. That is, he turned it away. Turned it away from us. We were the targets. But Christ intervened because God sent him to do so. And he took the wrath that was aimed for us. For you. His sacrifice on the cross, his death, appeased God's wrath. It satisfied God's wrath. It placated God. God exhausted his wrath toward all who would believe. Therefore, we who are Christians never have to worry about facing the wrath of God ever. It's a wonderful reality, isn't it? Amen. That's the love of God. That's when you see the love of God and the holiness of God working together to accomplish our redemption. God's love, he sent his son and God's wrath had to deal with our sin and his son in love dealt with that. And therefore now we don't have to face the wrath because of the love of God. See, you, you can't separate God's love from his wrath or work. They work together, these attributes and God using them both to accomplish salvation for us. God's justice, sins. God couldn't let sin be unpunished because he's a God of justice. And you ought to know that. Uh, you're made in the image of God. And whenever a wrong is done, you want justice served, don't you? You don't like injustice. Where do you think you got that from? That came from God. He made you in his image. He's a just God. And when there's wrongdoing, wrongdoing must be punished. And he does. Because he's just. And he will. One more thing. We need to comprehend something. God's love for his people, the children of God, is different from his love for everybody else. That's probably a radical thought for some of you. But if you really understand God's love biblically presented, God loves us differently than he loves other people. He loves all humanity, but he loves us savingly. He loves others, yes. He loves because he provides for them. He's compassionate toward them. He heals them. He provides food for them. He's given them gifts. But the love for us is saving love. He's redeemed us. Christ propitiated God's wrath for us. Show you a case. God loves even people who are not his. Even people who reject him. You may recall the story of the rich young ruler. Matthew chapter 10. This rich young ruler, rich uh, young man. He was a Jewish ruler. And he's young. He had everything, didn't he? He had wealth. He had position. And he was young. He came to Jesus. Mark chapter 10 is one case where this is found. And he said he wanted eternal life. And the text, 
Mark chapter 10 verse 21 says, and Jesus felt a love for him. Jesus loved that young man. And he, but he told him, you have to sell everything. And come follow me. The young man walked away. Because he had great possessions. But Jesus loved him. Fills the father fully. He loves all men. But he loves his people. In a unique way. And we see this here in verse 1 of chapter 3 of 1 John. He has bestowed this salvation love on us. And he calls us children of God. You notice it there. And then in the middle of the verse, after the semicolon, it says, and such we are. We are children of God. That's not a mere title, but it is a fact. We are the children of God right now. That's a fact. We are eternally children of God. We are permanently members of his family. That's a fact. In verse 1, the final sentence, it says, For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Let me tell you the, what the world is. The world is the organized mass of humanity estranged from God in rebellion and hatred of him and Christ. That's the world. The world does not understand us. We are inherently and radically different from them. We think differently. We have different values. We believe the word of God, that the Bible is indeed the word of God. God breathed. We believe that we do believe that Christ died, was raised and from the dead, and is in heaven and is going to return. We believe all of these, and our ethical behavior is different from theirs. They don't understand us. They do not understand God's relationship with us. We're different. They don't understand us. And you'll notice something in the verse. The world did not know him. In the past tense, did not. Probably refers to the fact that when Jesus was ministering during his earthly ministry, as he revealed the Father, they didn't know him. And Jesus at one point said, you don't know the Father. John eight fifty five. So they don't know us. <laughs> They didn't know him. That's who we are. We're the children of God. What we shall be. Did you know God's not done with you? That'll be a cause of rejoicing. Verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. John loved them. Of course, God loved them. That's why they're called beloved. And the fact that the world does not recognize us means nothing relative to us being the children of God. But John goes on under the direction of the Spirit of God and he says, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We are the children of God, but the full revelation of who we are has not been disclosed. That disclosure awaits the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In fact, the whole created order is groaning right now. The natural order is groaning, waiting for its freedom, which is connected with the freedom of the sons of God. Romans 8, um, 19. I don't know how familiar you are with it, but I'm going to read it. If you want to run over there with me and you can look at it and you can see. Um, what God's got in store and it's connected with as I just said the created order nature Romans eight nineteen. we see this profound relationship between uh, the created order and God's people Romans eight nineteen. for the ancients, anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God Wow. What the Apostle Paul does here, he personifies nature, the created order, as anxious, longing, waiting eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Think about that. Next time you go out and you look at some trees and you look at some mountains and you look at all that God has created, understand that creation is eagerly waiting in a personified manner for the revealing of the sons of God. Believers. You see, what, what creation wants, it wants to be delivered from the curse and the effects thereof. Haven't you ever been to the store and gotten a bad piece of fruit? I, I like grapes in particular. I like the red ones. I like them in the refrigerator. <laughs> and they're sweet. And I've, I'm addicted to them. I, I'm confessing my sins. <laughs> um, my wife makes sure there are plenty there. She likes them as well, but I don't know if she likes them as much as I do. I'm always... Going to the refrigerator, eating grapes. Bought some not long ago. Those rascals were not as sweet. Obviously, didn't taste as good. You know what I know? It's the curse. It's the curse. You see. I'm going to tell you right now, I wasn't there, but Adam and Eve, when they ate fruit in the garden for, for the fall, there's uh, nothing wrong with that food. We have the curse. You go some places in this world and you can't grow things. It's the curse. If you like a garden flower or vegetable, guess what? You got to deal with weeds. Who wants, why can't the vegetables and the flowers just grow and no problem? No, you got to, nature's cursed. We live here in Oklahoma. And every spring we're worried about the curse in a particular manner. We, tornadoes, they come through here. If you live on the Gulf Coast and you live in Florida, hurricane season comes and wipes out property and some lose their lives. Or you got this intense heat. Something's wrong in nature. I'll tell you what's wrong in nature. It's under a divine curse because of Adam's sin. 
And nature, as it were, is groaning under that curse, waiting to be liberated. And that liberation from the curse comes when Jesus Christ comes and we are, who are saved, we are revealed. That's the deal. Be unveiled. When Christ comes, the revealing of the sons of God, that unveiling of the sons of God means this, that we will at that moment share in Christ's glory. We will be like him. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the reality. Uh, then, then the public will say, whoa. We didn't know they were all that. Verse 21, let me share this with you. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Freedom of the glory of the children of God. We're going to be liberated from sin. We're going to be liberated from the flesh. And we're sharing God's glory. That's what Christians, that's what the children of God are going to experience. When our Lord Jesus Christ comes. Now in 1 John chapter 3, back in our text, it says we will be like him. And that word like needs explanation. Like does not mean identical to. We will never be omniscient. We'll never be omnipotent as Christ is since he is the God man. Our likeness to him will be in perfect moral character and in the possession of a resurrection body. In these respects, we will be as much like Christ as redeemed humanity can be like the Redeemer. We will be finally conformed completely, totally to the image of God's Son, which is God's plan. Romans 8, 29, that's what he's working to accomplish in our life. The English Standard Version Study Bible, ESV for short, has a helpful note about this transformation to Christ's likeness. Listen to it. It says this, quote, In eternity, Christians will be morally without sin, intellectually without falsehood or error, physically without weakness or imperfection. End of quote. It's right. That's where we're headed. The physical transformation of believers is revealed in a number of texts in the, in the New Testament. I'm going to tell you something. The reason it's um, mentioned a number of times, God wants us to get it. It dawned on me. It's interesting how often he talks about this. As I was just kind of surveying in my mind Paul's letters, I'm thinking, wow, this topic comes up frequently. It's interesting. But God has that in mind and he wants us to understand it. In 1 Corinthians 15, that classic passage on the resurrection, in verse 49, it says this, Just as we've borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. What the Apostle Paul means there is this, earthy, Adam, because we're all physical descendants of Adam, we've borne his image. But we're going to bear, who are believers, the heavenly image, and that is of uh, the last Adam. 
1 Corinthians 15, 45, the last Adam is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we see him, we'll be like him, transformed by him. Philippians 3, 21 says this, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even subject all things to himself, end of quote. Tell you what's going to happen. We're going to see him at that instantaneous look at Christ here by his power will personally transform all of us into likeness to himself. Uh, the change will mean immortality and imperishability. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Nobody at that time when that happens will ever worry about the coronavirus again. No diseases, no pharmacology, no medical professionals, except the ones in heaven. They'll be unemployed, <laughs> and they'll be glad about it. The saved funeral directors will be there, out of a job. We'll be immortal and imperishable. I'm going to tell you something. That is a concept that's beyond our comprehension. We can't even imagine what we're going to be like. We take it by faith. I can't imagine what it's going to be like to be sinless, to be immortal, to be imperishable. I can't imagine because God and I believe his word. Because I believe his word is going to come to pass. So who are we? We're the children of God. What we shall be, he just laid it out. We'll be like Christ. What do we do then? Hmm. Verse 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. A purifying hope. That's the title. Of, did I tell you that? That's the title of this sermon. When you read verse 3, one thing that pops out in your mind, and I know from mine, was eschatology, the doctrine of last things, has practical present effect in the life of a believer. If you're a child of God, what's going to happen in the future impacts you now. When it says that everyone, everyone refers to the children of God, that's the context. Children of God also referred to as those who abide in him by 1 John. Also, those who know him, 1 John 2, 3. That's who it's talking about. Those individuals, those who have been born of God, 1 John 2, 29, are the ones who has this hope fixed on him, Christ. This hope. The certainty that we will experience a transformation into Christ's likeness. We know it's going to happen because God has declared it. And it's fixed on him, this hope. The word fixed is added by the uh, translators to explain to us, help us grasp it on him. It's on him, upon Christ, our hope rests. He is the foundation 
Let me tell you something about our hope. It's not in this life. It's not grounded in earthly accomplishment, our prospects of accomplishing them. Our hope is transcendent, it is eternal, it is heavenly, it is supernatural, and it rests securely on Jesus Christ. That's where our hope is. If you, your hope is not on him and what he's going to do for you in the future, then you have the wrong hope. Ultimately, it better be on Christ. He is our hope. 1 Timothy 1, verse 1. Christ is our hope. He purchased our salvation. He secures our salvation. He's our hope. All that has been realized. Remember we read, I read for you, Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25. Uh, we eagerly wait for it. We persevere in it. If you're a Christian, you say, I'm waiting for that. That's what I'm looking forward to. Are you? Now, notice. <laughs> Anybody has that hope fixed on him? Everyone who does, all, all the saints do. Purifies himself. His hope of being completely like Christ purifies himself. Pursues personal holiness. By the way, let me let you know, we do not generate our own sanctification. The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit does not take place apart from the believer's obedience to the scripture in all things. But as Christians, we pursue holiness. We pursue purity. Purity is to be the pursuit of our life. The Apostle Paul, he made that the pursuit of his life. That's why he says in Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is the prize? Christ-likeness. You see, in this world, Christ-likeness will mean Christians want to sin less and less. And also they want more and more righteousness. Because that means they're more and more like their Savior. One day they'll be perfectly righteous. We'll be perfectly righteous like him when we receive the upward call to heaven. There's a threshold we're going to cross into heaven. And at that very moment, boom, guess what? We're going to be perfectly like Christ. Sometimes I hear these people talking about uh, your destiny and all this. They don't talk about this. I say, if it's not about what Christ has said, what his will is, what God has determined, then they're not talking about what the Bible says. You purify yourself. Purify yourself. Say, how do you do that? I'm glad you asked. Second Corinthians chapter 7. Let me give you just a couple of verses and help you to Think them through. Second Corinthians seven one. He's talking about the promises. God's uh, intimate walk with us will, and ours with Him will be realized when we separate ourselves from contaminating sinful activity. That's what Paul is saying, particularly for those Corinthians uh, there in that city they lived, and for us in whatever the activity is that is not um, godly. 
That's not holy. It says, verse 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Whatever is defiling you, whatever is uh, sinful, whatever is contrary to the word of God that is not keeping you what God wants you to be, you need to get rid of it, right? Cleanse yourself. Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, verse 14. One more place. You want to take preventative action. Romans 13, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What he means by that, the character of Christ. That's what put on means. His character. Like clothing, it defines you, his character. And make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. In other words, provision. Do not plan ahead. Do not think ahead. How are you going to satisfy the lust of the flesh? That shouldn't be in your mind. Make no provision. It's to Christians. So you purify yourself. These texts and others, it calls for obedience. It's how we purify ourselves. Keep ourselves clean. And we do that now. In this life. Purifying yourself. Notice 1 John chapter 3, the end of the verse. Just as he is pure. Jesus Christ is absolutely righteous, absolutely pure. He is our standard. He is our model. We look at him. We want to be like him. And we pursue likeness to him. It's who you look at. And I'm going to tell you something. The Lord will help you do it. Let me conclude with this. One day, you're going to be a brand new you. A brand new you for all eternity. That's what awaits the children of God. One day, this world as it is and as we know it and as we are, that'll be history. We will be in eternity. We will be like our Lord. That's going to be a wonderful day. When the children of God experience in full their salvation and their destiny. We're destined for that. If that is your hope, it will purify you now. You'll get your life clean and work to keep it so because you know that's what God is taking you to let's bow together in prayer
Our God and our Father, we thank you for these truths, really, that um, so contrary to the world's expectations and the world's aims and desires. We, your children, what you've planned for us is so utterly distinct and different from anything that we know in this life. Thank you for these truths. May they find deep understanding and resonance in the heart of every hearer, every child of God. And may we pursue this for your glory and honor, experience the joy of obedience, the delight of being all that Christ and you want us to be. Thank you, Lord, that we have a, a, a destiny that is beyond our comprehension, but will be exceedingly, exquisitely wonderful for all eternity. Lord, we pray for anybody in this room today who is unsaved. Their destiny is opposite of what we who believe have in store. Open their eyes. Grant them grace of repentance and faith. They may experience being children of God truly. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.